My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and uh, we're going to take a small break from the Gospel of Luke, which we've been walking through for the last few months, and we're going to look at 1 John. That's where we're going to be today. Um, so if you want to start turning in your Bible to 1 John, it's near the end of the Bible. Um, if you don't have one, there is Bibles in the chair backs in front of you. You're welcome to use that. If you don't own one, please take that home. That is yours to have. Um, we want you to have God's Word with you, ready to read, so that you can um, speak of it, hear of it, and uh, learn from it. So um, what we began last week as we started to walk into 1 John is this, that um, there was these believers that were in the church and they, people we would call, the, this church called brothers and sisters in Christ. And you watch them leave the church. And, and they leave and they come back and they're like, you know, we've kind of figured some things out. Uh, we're supposed to actually be believing this. And we're actually supposed to be acting this way. I think we've actually kind of got it wrong. So let us tell you how the right way it is to be a Christian. And so the church that John is writing this letter to here in First John is in a lot of confusion there's a lot of questions about what does it mean to be a Christian? Are they really right? Am, have I been wrong my whole life? Well, you know, Where am I supposed to stand on all of these things? And so John is writing this letter as a letter of assurance, this letter that he hopes the church will be able to read and, and say at the end of it, uh, I feel assured in my walk with Christ. I am a Christian, or maybe I'm not. But he's trying to write this to assure them, to give them confidence in what they believe, in who Christ is, in the gospel that they have proclaimed. And so uh, I titled the series, That You May Know, because throughout the whole of this book, John over and over again tells the church, I'm writing these things to you so that, so that you may know this, so that you may believe this, so that you may have this, because these are markers of what it means to be a Christian. And so that's really what I hope to do today as we continue through this series. I want us to walk away assured. Um, I I promised last week as we began through this that I would bring certainty, but it's going to bring with it uncertainties as well. So um, let's just prepare our hearts to be real with ourselves as we read God's word, as we hear what it has to say to us. Let's ask honest questions of ourselves and uh, see what it has to say to us today. So we're going to be in 1 John chapter 1. We'll be starting in uh, verse 5 is where we're going to be at and working our way um, all the way down through verse 2 of chapter 2. So let's read his word. This is what it says, starting in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him, speaking of Christ, and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 
So on October 31st, 1517, a Catholic monk and university professor walked up to the door of the Wittenberg Church in Germany and nailed his 95 theses to the door, wanting to debate with other university professors and monks about the sale of indulgences. And what these were were things that you could actually purchase from the Catholic Church at the time, something that would pardon your sins, forgive you. Had nothing to do with forgiveness in truth from the Bible had nothing to do with the gospel. You just paid them money and they sold you pardon and forgiveness of sins. And Luther wasn't really happy about this and wanted to have a debate about it. So he nails his 95 theses to the door. And the very first thing Martin Luther stated in, in his theses is, I think, of extreme, if not utmost importance to us today, where we live and, and how we live. This is what he said in his first theses. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And while we may not be living in 1517 and the Catholic Church may not be ruling and reigning over all that goes on in our life and our culture, I think there's a lot of things that Luther had to face then that we are still facing today in 2016 especially when it comes towards our feelings in regards to the gospel and our sin, and specifically as we begin to diminish sin's power and severity in our own lives. For instance, um, there's three, three ways I see this happening and that John is actually going to talk about today. Some might feel that sin has more power than it actually does it's too strong. It's, it's inevitable. I'm going to just give in. And so as they look at their life, they say, there's no way I can actually overcome this, so I might as well go ahead and sin, right? God will forgive me anyways. That's what we believe in, right? So it's too strong. It's, it's inevitable. I'm going to go ahead and sin. And so we say that the gospel in that moment is not actually powerful enough to help us overcome sin in our lives, or the legalist says that sin is something so actually weak that I, in my own power, in my own strength, by my own rules and my own moral living, can overcome it. Thereby negating and diminishing the power and the necessity of the cross of Christ. If it's all done by us, why do we need Jesus? Whereas the licentious person, the person who is in freedom, living in license, is the kind of person who makes a profession of faith, but then cares nothing about what their life looks like afterwards. They say in their heart that sin really has no power to hurt me or to do me any harm. I've been forgiven by Jesus, right? And so makes a mockery of the pain and the hardships and the death that our Savior went through on the cross. And so while we may not be selling pardons and forgiveness for sins like the Catholic Church in Luther's day, um, we are in our hearts, I think, in a lot of ways, doing the very same things as them. And truly, honestly, the same things that these people in the, the church that John is writing to were doing. That's really where we come to the text today um, that we're looking at. The men and the women who have left the church are coming back to create this division and this confusion among the believers of the church um, and they begin this initially, John is addressing this first thing that they deal with uh, about lies about how Christians should live and their freedom to actually sin. But John says he writes these things to the church. He says there in chapter 2, verse 1, I write these things to you that, that they may not sin. Sin is something that John is saying is not to be dallied with or played with. It's not something to be managed or dealt with in any way. But instead, sin will only ever lead to death. 
For this is a promise that was made by God to Adam and Eve in the garden. Death is only whatever follows in the wake of sin. Death to our relationships with God, our relationships with others, and even in ourselves. That is what sin brings. John Owen, the Puritan writer, once wrote, uh, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. And yet, so often we are really quick to dismiss the sin in our own hearts and lives and act like it's not even there are not that big of a deal. But do you realize that sin is the reason that on Wednesday I get to celebrate with my cousin that I find out that he and his brand new wife are pregnant and then Thursday night I get to weep with him as he calls me and tells me they can't find a heartbeat any longer. And that's not because they sin, but because sin exists in this world. Do you realize that racism exists in this world, in our country, and is tearing it apart? Not, not because it's just happening, but because sin exists. Murder happens because sin exists in this world. Cancer ravages the body of the old and the young, not because they deserved it necessarily, specifically because of their own sin, but sin is doing this to everything. It's tearing it apart. It's breaking it down. It's killing everything. That's what comes with sin. And yet we act like it's just a nuisance. Something really that we only deal with when we have to face the consequences for it, right? Up until then, it doesn't really matter. We really just don't like dealing with the consequence of the sin that we committed. Sin itself doesn't seem to be as big of an issue to us and our own hearts. But if we truly do worship the God of the Bible then there is no way that we can have anything to do with this sin. If we truly do live in fellowship with God Almighty and have all things in common with him, like we talked about last week, then we must, as well as fellowship, have his holiness. This is where John begins his whole dialogue with the church that he's writing to. He says there in verse 5 that the message Jesus proclaimed was this, God is light and in him is no darkness at all, at, at all. There is nothing, absolutely nothing about God, his character, his nature, his actions that even come close to touching darkness. He is the holiest and most pure of beings. In him is no darkness at all. And yet we who would say we are his children, his followers, his believers, allow sin to be something we deal with like it's no big deal. And yet it is due to God's eternal holiness and light that even our most minuscule of sins require the death of his one and only son, Jesus, who was the revelation and manifestation of this light to us, that we might be saved from sin's rightful punishment upon our lives. Do you realize this morning, I want us to be honest for a moment, do you realize this morning the severity and the consequences of our sin? I want to put that weight upon us because that weight will do one of two things. It will either crush us or push us further to Christ. So as we deal with this this morning, let it push you to Jesus. Let the weight of that reality, the severity and the consequences of our sin this morning, push us to Jesus. It's what he wants us to do and is calling us to do. This is no small matter. Sin is no small matter to be dealt with by merely living a moral life or just letting it run rampant. It requires and still does today 
as it did at the moment of our salvation, the powerful work of the gospel of Jesus Christ to be dealt with. Our sin requires, as Luther said, and I quoted at the beginning, our repentance not just once, but for the rest of our lives every day. John says in these verses that we just read, both that he desires us not to sin, right? That's why he's writing this. But he also says that if we say we don't have sin, that we're liars, So recognize here what John is trying to set up. He's calling us not to sin, but he's saying at the same time, don't say that you don't sin. You don't have sin. That makes you a liar. John is not trying to bring us to this place of perfection and saying this is how you are only ever supposed to live. You can't. Don't say you're doing that or you're a liar. What he's actually asking and calling the church to at this moment is a life of repentance a life that constantly is looking at the depths of its own hearts and actions and is always turning away from the lies of sin and running directly towards Jesus. This is by definition what repentance is, a 180 from our sin, turning from it, turning our back to it and running to Christ. That is what repentance is. It is a process, but it is a finality as well. It is a constant struggle in our lives, but I can promise you from the word it comes with assured victory. John, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in these verses, is saying this. Christians live a life of repentance because we believe in a gospel of repentance. And the truths of this have massive implications for us. And I think there's this question of then, what what does it mean to be repentant? And that's really what John's going to deal with today. He's going to show us what it means to be truly repentant, to not believe the lies of sin, but to walk in the truths of God's light. The reality that God is light and in him is no darkness at all means, first of all, that for those of us who would call ourselves his children, there are some things that must work themselves out in our lives. And not because they have to, not because they become rules that we have to check the box for and make sure we get done, but as we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, there are things that are promised that will happen because we want to. Whether, whether we decide to or not, these are the things that will happen in our life. A life that grows in holiness and righteousness is the promise of the believer. So in this letter, you have these people who have left the church and are um, spreading lies about sin and the Christian life. And John talks about three lies in particular that we're going to look at today that, that these men and women are bringing back into the church. And he wants to deal with them. And the first lie that I'm going to Uh, talk about today, I'm going to call is is the defeatist lie. And it says that it's actually possible to continue in fellowship with God while walking or continuing to live in darkness and sin. So think back to, to what I talked about, the person who thinks or says sin is inevitable, it's just too strong, too tempting, so I might as well just let it happen and not care. Jesus will forgive me anyways, right? But John says there in verse 6, And he he states the lie always first. He says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, that's the lie. If we say that, we can have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. It is impossible for us to be living and walking in darkness while being in fellowship with God. You and I cannot have all things in common, live in fellowship with the God of light if we walk and live continually in a way of darkness. Darkness and light are mutually exclusive. They cannot exist in the same place at the same time. It either is light or it is dark. We cannot have both. And remember here that John, in this letter, he's writing this this to not the world, 
not to unbelievers. He's writing this to the church, to those who say they do believe in Christ. So the issue really at hand here is this. Can a true believer and follower of Christ walk in darkness? You realize how weighty of a question that is. Can a true believer in Christ walk in darkness? That's the the issue he is posing here. Because while we absolutely believe in a gospel that says we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, not of anything you and I have done, but by the work and finished work of Christ this morning, we also believe in a gospel that says in Ephesians 2, 10, that we are saved to do good works that God has prepared beforehand for us to do. We believe in a gospel that says in Hebrews 12, 14, that, that we are to strive for, to go after holiness. And he says that we're to do that because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. There's not a person who can. This is the gospel we believe in. And there's a tension that's created there. But John is saying in these verses, our belief in the gospel must by its nature bring with it a change in our actions It is what has to happen. This is what a truly repentant heart that lives day by day in repentance does. It changes. Christians live a life of repentance because they have been given a heart to live a holy life. This is a promise. Sin doesn't have to win. Sin doesn't have to be the thing that you give into. Sin doesn't have to defeat you. You have been given the promise and the gift of the Holy Spirit who seals you, who empowers you, just like he did Jesus Christ to live an absolutely holy life. Am I gonna, are you going to get it right all the time? No. But he has promised you that you can. You do not have to give in to sin any longer. A truly repentant heart can live a holy life. So as I sit with somebody across the table, a, a man who, who tells me, you know, I, I struggle with pornography but maybe it's less of a struggle and more I just go home and this is what I do. And I look at him and I say, this isn't how a man, a Christian is supposed to live. This isn't how Christians act. This isn't what they do. And he looks at me and says, I know. This is what I want to do. And does it anyways. Walks into that sin knowingly. How in the world can I look at that, that person and say with any confidence... Yeah, you're a believer. We stand together. We worship the same God of light. I'm not saying by any means that I have the discernment to understand people's hearts. That is for God and God alone. So don't hear me saying that. But as I look at my own heart and my own life and I deal with my own sins and and recognize seasons where they seem to just run their course, I come to the end of those at times wondering and questioning whether or not I am his because he promises to make me in the image of his son and that does not seem to be reflecting that image. He promises, promises that he's gonna send me his Holy Spirit that will allow me and give me victory over those things to live in those ways. So how in the world can I be assured that I'm a believer if I'm walking in unrepentant, non-caring sin, giving into it and letting it do whatever I want in my life? How is there any assurance? 
And yet, there's men in the Bible like David who committed adultery with Bathsheba and then tried to trick her husband into thinking he's the one that got her pregnant, but he wouldn't do it. So David then decides to send him to the front lines and kill him and hide it all and bring Bathsheba into his own home. And then in Acts, after, you know, this is thousands of years later, Paul in Acts says that David is a man by God's own mouth, a man after God's own heart. How's that even possible? How can one lead to such lack of assurance and one be a man after God's own heart? And it's this issue of repentance. That's what David did. He repented. This means that 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 man or you or I who may be walking in darkness at times are never ever too far gone from the grace of God. We are never out of the grasps or the reach of the love of God. The question is, will you repent? Was repentance a a one-time thing at an altar call? Or is it a continual thing that marks your heart and your life? I want to encourage those of you this morning that might find yourselves with an unrepentant heart, walking knowingly in sin and in darkness. You do not have to stay there. That does not have to be the life that marks you. Sin does not have to win. Repent, turn away from your sin and towards God, the God of light. Run to him. And as John promises in verse 7, feel the weight of this lift. It says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And notice there that our sin doesn't just break our fellowship with God. It says it breaks our fellowship with one another. So we talked about last week, fellowship with God must lead to fellowship with one another. It's what comes. It's the natural outworking of living with God. In the same way, when our relationship with him is broken, our relationship with one another is broken. Sin literally destroys everything. Absolutely everything. But... John promises from God's word, if we walk in the light, which is a promise God is giving here by his grace, we can walk in the light. We can live a life of obedience and holiness. This is ours to have. If we walk in obedience to the truth of God's command and his word, loving him with all of our heart, all of our soul, our mind, and our strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves, then our fellowship is real and restored because of the blood of Jesus Christ who cleanses us from all sin. We actually can live a holy life as Christians. It just requires us to repent. That's what he's calling us to. That's the first lie, this one that says sin wins. There's another lie, the second lie, uh, is where John goes next. And this lie is the, the lie of licentiousness, this license to live however we want. And it's, it says that people believe that, that we don't really have any sin, that we're not guilty of committing sin. There's no guilt that lies upon me because of what I do. And the Gnostic philosophy that uh, these men and women who have left the churches is what they believe they held to was a Gnostic understanding of things. Um, as we talked about last week, they believe that this physical world and all that we see and understand is evil. That it's holding all of us at bay from the spirit that's inside of us to do what it's supposed to. So it's like uh, keeping us held down, right? We can't do what we're supposed to do. The spirit can't be free to live as it's supposed to live because this physical world is keeping us down. But in the same way, they were able to take this truth that they believed 
about the, the physical world holding them down and twist it to say, that means that I can do whatever I want in this physical world and it doesn't taint my spirit at all. I can live however I want. I can sleep with whoever I want. I can think whatever I want. I can kill people if I want. And it doesn't matter because this physical world is only holding me back. It plays no real um, part in my spirit and my soul and the good of who I am. And while that seems absolutely crazy, because as I was reading and thinking, it just seems nuts that people could believe that, I recognized in my own heart this reality that there are times, and maybe you would find this true as well, that I see sin, or we may see sin, and knowingly act in that sin because we know we've been forgiven. Don't worry, I can do this thing. I'll just do it this one time. Jesus will forgive me, right? His grace covers me. It doesn't matter in the end anyways. He'll see me as righteous. And so we take the grace of God and the gift of salvation and we twist it to do the same thing. Make us not guilty of the things that we may do in this life. But John is saying in these verses, this is a lie. This is a farce. There in verse 8, stating the lie, if we say we have no sin, he says we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We are deceiving ourselves if we think that we are not guilty of sin. This must mean that God's light and his truth, he says, are not actually inside of us. So not only are we not practicing truth as stated in the last lie, but, we, but the truth of God is not actually in us. Because for us to respond to the gospel, we must agree and confess from the very beginning that we are in fact sinners. This is the issue at hand when you come to the gospel. We cannot have a relationship with God Almighty, the God of light, or live in fellowship with him as long as we are sinners. Because he is a God of light and in him is no darkness at all. Right? So even the smallest trace of darkness in our own hearts means that we cannot, in fact, live in relationship with him. It's what happens because of sin. But we do know, in fact, that the truth of God's word and the gospel has come to, to work into our hearts when it wrecks us and shows us our absolute desperation and need for Jesus because the gospel speaks truth not just about who God is as a God of light, but truth about who we are. That's what the gospel does. It doesn't leave room for deception in our own hearts. And so what do we do with this newfound truth that God is light and we aren't? We repent. We confess our sinfulness before God and turn to Christ in faith. And John says that we don't do this just once, but over and over again. We defeat the lie that we aren't guilty of any sin that we commit or have no sin, John says by this in verse 9. He says we defeat that if we confess our sins. And when we do that, he is faithful. Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Christians live a life of repentance because they believed the truth that they are a sinner. Remember, he's writing this to the church. He is saying this, this repentance deal isn't a one and done deal. We continually and repeatedly confess our sins before God as his truth and his light shine into the depths and dark crevices of our heart to reveal more and more sin. 
And this doesn't mean that who we are in Christ, our identity, who Christ has said we are in the gospel has changed in any way. But as Christians, as people who want to walk in fellowship with this God of light, it means that we don't want anything in the way keeping us from this God of light who brings us joy, who satisfies us, who fills our heart. And so we want to get rid of the sin. I heard someone describe it once like stepping in dog poop. Right? When you step in it, you don't just leave it there and walk around with it. It stinks. It smells. People don't like to be around you anymore. You don't like to be around you anymore. You don't just leave it there and say, I'll take care of it someday. Don't worry about it. That's not how we deal with that. When we step in it, we, we take off the shoe and we clean it. And we don't just like get the, the base off. You know, we're like pulling apart the treads, trying to get it all out of there. Clean it out. Get the crevices and everything that's in there cleaned out so that it doesn't smell anymore. In the same way, that's how repentance works. It's how a repentant life works. We look at the, the, our heart and we deal with the, the dark crevices and cracks of our heart and we ask God's light to shine into it, his truth to be in us, in every, every area, that we can confess it so that he might cleanse us of that sin, so that he might clean us out. And this confession that we give isn't because God doesn't know about our sin. God is totally aware that you have sinned. He's not unaware. But this confession brings with it in our own hearts a a recognition, a declaration of truth, of humility, of contriteness. In Psalm 51, after David confesses his sin with Bathsheba, He tells God, you don't desire a sacrifice. What you desire is a humble and contrite heart. And that's what confession does. It brings us to this place and declares, we get it. We're sinners. We have failed. We have fallen short. We haven't gotten it all right. But we believe and trust in a God who does. It humbles us. And this confession, this repentant life that we live Due to our sin, it's a battle and a struggle for all of our life. And it's a struggle for our life. Paul says in Romans 8, 13, as he's writing to another church and other Christians, he says, for if you live according to the flesh, according to the passions and the things that drive us in our sin, if we live according to that, we will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live Christians, brothers and sisters, we are guilty of sin. And even after our salvation, we will continually battle the realities of who God says we are in Christ with the truths of the the sin that seems to eke its way out into our actions, into our motives, into our thoughts. It will be a battle always. So we must do battle with it. And John says to do it by the Spirit through confession and repentance. So John says, So far, we've dealt with two lies, right? The the defeatist lie. We've dealt with the licentious lie. But there's one more lie that, that John wants to deal with today as he talks about our sin, and it's the lie of legalism. There in verse 10, John says this. Speaking of, of the lie, he says, If we say we have not sinned, we make him, speaking of God, a liar, and his word is not in us. The legalistic person says, Look at me. 
Look at all I've done. I've lived such a good life. I've followed all the rules. Look at how moral I am. I've even set up all of these boundaries and these extra rules, and I've stayed so far back from sin. There's no way that you can call me a sinner. I have not sinned. And in their pride and their arrogance of saying and making this claim, because they leave God completely out of the equation, they determine it's through their own good works and abilities that they have remained free from sin. And Romans 1 says this about that type of thought and life. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Notice the darkness there. And it says, claiming to be wise, claiming to understand and know what is right and good to do, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. And all of a sudden, we, in that moment, in the legalistic lie, take the place of God. And so break the first commandment of not putting any other gods before Yahweh. And living like this, John says, we are actually trying to make God a liar. We're saying that we didn't need a Messiah. We didn't need Jesus to come and save us. Look, I can do it all by myself. There's no need for the cross. There was no need for you to send your one and only son to die for us. I can get it all done on my own. And so we make light and mockery of the cross of Christ. His beatings, his mockings, his scourging, and his death upon a Roman cross. They are meaningless to the man who says, look, I have not sinned. I figured it out. I don't need you, God. I've got it on my own. Do you hear the arrogance of this lie? Do you hear the pride that lies underneath it? And yet, in this area that we tend to live in southwest Missouri, in the culture we're in, this tends to be the lie that is the most prevalent. And this tends to be the lie that's most prevalent I see in my own heart. And I know this because um, as I live through my day, if I get to the end of the day and realize that maybe I've done okay, right? I haven't, you know, thought bad things or said bad things or, you know, for the most part, I've done a good job. I've lived a, a pretty good life. Then at the end of that day, man, I'm on cloud nine. God and I are like best buds, you know? We, we got a, a friendship and a partnership. We're doing really good at that moment. But the minute I notice sin in my heart, the minute I recognize that I have sinned, I am absolutely devastated. And my world seems to crumble a little bit, and I wonder what's going on and how terrible it is that I have sinned. And in the midst of this, God has not been a single part of the equation. The gospel has played no factor in what is going on in my life. All that matters is my performance. How have I done? How good did I do in your eyes today, God? How bad did I do in your eyes today? That has never been the issue of the gospel. The gospel says we are all bad. Jesus was good and he came to save you so that you can stand on the good side. And the legalist lie says, no, 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 no. You've figured it out. You don't need anybody else. Look, I can live a life of no sin. I have not sinned. And John is saying and has been saying throughout this letter, don't believe these lies. These are not Christian truths and thoughts. This isn't how Christians live. We are not the ones who are defeated by our sin. We are not the ones who give in to our sin all the time. And we are not the ones who overcome sin on our own. These are lies and they come from a heart full of sin. 
They're the lies that Satan and our flesh in this world try to propagate. Don't believe these lies. That's what John is trying to say. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Don't believe these things. He says, instead, this is what you should do. Live repentantly. Live a life in the light. Walk in obedience and fellowship with God and one another. Strive for holiness and practice the truth. Walk in, uh, sorry, battle your sin. Confess your sins. This is how Christians live. This is what we do. But we don't live this way. And we don't act this way in our own power. And this is how John is finishing up this argument. We don't do this in our own power, in our own strength. But instead by the power and the life of another. Christians live repentant lives because they believe they need a savior. John wraps up all of this call not to, st- not to sin by stating this in chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. He says this, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. I love that. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Brothers and sisters, men and women sitting in the chairs with us today. This morning, no matter where you are, whether you have never come to Christ and so have lived your whole life in sin, or maybe you thought you were always a Christian, but you realize this morning you've walked so long in unrepentant sin that you're just not sure anymore. Or maybe you walk day by day with Jesus, but you know you have sinned and you will. I want you to know this morning and be encouraged this morning. Take heart. You have an advocate before the Father, before the God of light. And this advocate, this God-man, he was and is a light who has been revealed to the world. He is the righteous one who has never committed any sin. He is the one to whom the keys of death and Hades have been handed. He defeated death as it had no hold on him. And he is seated in majesty on high at the right hand of the Father. And this God-man, Jesus Christ, he is your advocate this morning. He pleads on your behalf before the Father because of his blood, because of his death, because of his sacrifice, not yours. And he doesn't do it because he's obligated. But he comes this morning and pleads before the judge who sees your sin and judges rightly. And pleads and says, take my death. Take the wrath you poured out upon me. Take the scourging and the mocking and the shame that was mine and and let that be their punishment. And instead, give them righteousness. Jesus Christ, the righteous, has given us his righteousness this morning. You and I no longer have to fear what our sin may do before the Father because he says there that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Literally, that means that Jesus has swallowed up the wrath of God. His sacrifice was the payment needed so that the wrath of God does not have to be on us any longer. He was the lamb that was slain. And, and, and we don't have to worry as well about how much sin we ever have committed. Because he says there that Jesus' death and his propitiation is not good just for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Do you recognize the immensity of the price that was paid? His payment was so vast that there is no amount of sin that cannot be covered or paid the price for in Jesus' blood. So don't mistake the words there. This isn't saying that that Jesus' blood has been applied to all. 
but it is available to all. There is none that have gone too far. You have not sinned too much this morning. You have only to come to Jesus. Come to your advocate and in repentance, trust him. Believe in him. And as John said and has promised in every one of these lies with the truth, he claims those promises upon the blood of Jesus Christ and his blood as you come to him will cleanse you from all of your sin. For he has promised that he has paid the price in full so that God in faithfulness and justice can look upon us and pardon us and see us not guilty any longer and see us clean before him. See us as light and not darkness any longer. Do not believe the lie of the legalist this morning. Do not believe you can do this on your own. You need Jesus Christ the righteous, your advocate, to plead for you before the Father, and he is. He promises to be there at his throne pleading on your behalf. That is good news this morning. Do not believe the lie that sin has won and will always win. Jesus died to give us victory. Do not believe the lie that you can live however you want We are sinners, and Jesus' death stands as a statement to the amount of sin we have committed. Do not, this morning, think that you can do it on your own power and in your own strength, but believe this morning in Jesus Christ. Repent, live a holy life. Confess your sins and run to Jesus. I promise you won't be left wanting. Let's pray to him this morning. Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning and uh, I just want to express gratitude in this moment for your pleas on our behalf. There are things that go very unnoticed in my own heart, in my own life. And so I thank you, Jesus, for your blood that speaks and pleads a better word for us who are your sons and your daughters. I thank you and I praise you this morning for the death that you died in my place and for my sin. Sin deserves death and you took that and I thank you and I praise you. We sit this morning, we stand this morning, we do all that we do today in the realities of that grace. So I just want to thank you. I ask this morning, Father, that you do not let sin seem too small to us in our own hearts be diminished in our own lives, its severity, its consequences, but with all-out fury, by the power of your Spirit, may we seek to live a holy life, a repentant life before you, one that trusts in the blood of Christ, one that believes in his sacrifice and his grace. Would you, Father, help us to see our sin for what it is and run to Jesus. I pray that your Holy Spirit convicts us where we need to be convicted, draws us to repentance where we need to be repentant. But I pray that you use your spirit to just bear fruit in our hearts and our lives as we've heard your words spoken. Let it not leave us unchanged, but changed as we leave this place. 
And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.